Philippus FM. Last time we talked about the power of speech. In this episode, we're going to talk about the very real consequences of that speech. And in order to do that, I really want you to imagine these were real people exchanging these stories because they were. I'm your host Alex Williams. Welcome back to the Creation Stories. Today we'll see the earth become more recognizable with land, seas, and plants. And we'll see how this story itself took shape in the context of the ancient Near East. Let's start off with Cantor Russ telling the story of the third day. The third day, then God says the waters that are below are too chaotic. They need to be put under control and they need to be separated from what's going to become the dry land. So God then commands that the waters be gathered together so their chaos will cease. And then the dry land appears because now the waters aren't flowing everywhere. And once the waters have been put under control and put in their proper place so that the dry land can appear, then all of a sudden what pops up on the dry land but the plants, that they're now able to come forward and come out of the earth and have their place because now the waters are under control, so now the land can have its control reasserted, and then the plants appear. Here's Imam Sayyid with what is said in Islam. Why people don't ponder how beautifully and marvelously God has created the mountains. And how the earth, Allah Azza wa Jal, God the Exalted, has created for you. It serves for you like a cradle. Allah uses the word Mahda, Mihada, which means cradle. This earth is for you like a cradle. A baby is resting in cradle. The cradle moves, but baby is not hurt. Rather, it enjoys. In the same way, the earth is moving. It's moving so rapidly, so fast, that you cannot even imagine. You are working day and night. You are doing all your activities on the earth. But you don't feel the movement while it is moving. Allah says in Quran, When you look at the mountains, you think they are static. They are still. But no, they are moving like clouds. So in this verse, or in similar verses, God is talking about the movement of the earth. However, we cannot imagine that. We cannot feel that. In Sermon 210 of Peak of Eloquence, Imam Ali describes the creation of the mountains and the land's separation from the waters. After his description, he says, in this way, he made it a cradle for his creatures. You'll recall what Natasha said in the last episode about the earth, the waters, resembling the idea of a womb. I love this imagery of a cradle, of a mother earth. In these interpretations of the story, you can see how the earth is being prepared for the animal life that's to come in the next couple days. Something else I think is cool about this creation story is that we have thousands of years of documented interpretations from a wide variety of people too. I can't fit all of those interpretations into this podcast. That's one of my biggest limitations. So with World Interfaith Harmony Week coming up, consider reaching out locally to someone with a different perspective than you and ask them about it. 
For now, please enjoy some more beautiful readings, descriptions, and interpretations from the Christian perspective. And God said, let the waters under the sky be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Dry land, sea, and all named good. Then God said that the earth put forth vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees of every kind on earth that bear fruit with the seed in it. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed of every kind and trees of every kind bearing fruit with seed in it. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the third day. So now we have plant life and it is abundant. So the creation story is telling us earth is an abundant abundant reality. What we need for life is provided and is provided in more quantity than we can ever use. So there's this deep understanding of abundance. And, and you know, this creation myth grew up in a part of the world where it was arid, or it is to this day, arid and dry. Production of food was a huge, huge concern as, as it is everywhere, but some places tend to have a little more rain, others don't. And so this myth is really reaffirming God, life, this earth is abundant. That, that is the ultimate goal, abundant life, abundant life. And again, you, you see this all the way then through how we, we talk about ourselves spiritually. And one of my favorite verses in the Gospel of John is when Jesus comes and he says, I have come to give life and so that they may have it abundantly. It isn't just life, it's abundant life, right? A life that is rich and meaningful and um and generative that's such an important spiritual starting point and point to return to so this abundance that is given to us from this earth i loved hearing these themes of this origin story tie in with later developments in christian theology and how this idea of abundant life was a contrast to the nature surrounding the people developing this myth but the contrast isn't just with the local nature it also shows when looked at beside the other stories of the day. You might have noticed this already because of our deep dive in the previous episode into other stories of the ancient Near East, but here's Cantor Russ for a little elaboration of his own. It's interesting because our creation myth, both of them, but even for this first one in the seven days of creation, it is in many ways antithetical to the other ancient Near Eastern creation stories. Because when you look at those creation stories, humanity is created by the gods in order to serve the gods, but not serve as in be in relationship with, literally to serve, to work for, uh, you know, to make sure that they have enough to eat and enough to drink, to amuse them. And that's a very dark image of what humanity can be. But in Judaism, we said no. Our creation myth, although it does have some imagery that is very similar to those other ancient Near Eastern creation myths, our creation myth ultimately says, no, we're not created as the plaything of the gods. We're created to be in relationship with the gods and to actually help the creation become stronger and better because of our presence there. We're created to be in relationship with divinity and by being in relationship with divinity to actually work with and help creation prosper. 
And so that's a very different way of viewing humanity's role in the universe. And Judaism has always said that humanity's role in the universe is to make the world better, not to be these abused servants of God's, but to actually be in relationship with God and to do something positive with our presence here. And I think that's reflected very strongly in the role that humanity is given in the creation story. And of course, acknowledging quite um, rightly that we are a, just a part of creation like everything else, that we're not something separate from creation. God is separate in some ways from creation in that first creation story because God hovers over all of it and puts it into order. But we are an integral part of creation with a unique role. Hopefully I'm not spoiling the story for anyone here, but humans don't show up in this story until day six. And yes, in this creation myth, humans do indeed have a role that is unique when contrasted against other stories we have from the same time and region. If you're itching to get to episode six, me too. I love talking about myself, but we have more story and more context to cover before we get there. For the rest of this episode, let's focus on the contrast we see with the other ancient Near Eastern stories. So what do we see as far as the relationship between these Hebrew stories and their relationship with other stories around Babylon and the rest of the ancient Near East? So I think to answer the question well, it might not be a bad idea to take two minutes and just sort of give a, a brief background to the history uh, of the region. Again, very, very broad strokes. The first mention that we have of Israel anywhere comes from 1207 BCE. So, you know, the end of the 13th century. And there, they're not like this powerful nation. They're mentioned in the Merneptha And they're like this people group that are significant enough to say we conquered them, but not significant enough to, you know, have them be this big nation. So, you know, most biblicists and, and particularly archaeologists would say, you know, Israel doesn't become a thing until the 13th, probably the late 13th century in, in the Iron One period, very late Bronze Age, uh, early Iron Age. And, and of course, they're still in this sort of loose, you know, this the, the, they're not a major nation state is, the, I think, the, the point. And it's in this period, the reason that they are allowed or they have the, the ability to develop into their own ethnic group is that you know, if you if you think about where Palestine or Canaan is, it's you know right in between. It's you know along the sort of the land bridge, I guess, in between the desert off to the east and the Mediterranean off to the west. And anybody that wants to go from Mesopotamia or from Turkey down to Egypt and further, they've got to pass through. Um, unless they're going to go via ship or go through the desert, they're they're passing through you know Canaan, this 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 land strip, and Israel exists, Palestine exists adjacent to Egypt, right? And so, because of that, because of its location in between these major powers, it was a contentious area, and it was a it was an area that people fought over. Now, Egypt, during like the second half of the second millennium, leading up to the formation of Israel as a nation state, 
it's under the control, very clearly under the control of Egypt. I mean, it's an Egyptian province. Because of that, that, that's very important to recognize when we think about things like where do these stories come from? Because we know a lot about what's going on in Canaan in the second half of the second millennium. It's a very famous period called the Amarna period. You've got these major powers all over the Near East. And they're, you know, we, we know a lot that we have letters for them writing back and forth. And we have hundreds of letters coming from these sort of petty kings that are existing in Canaan back and forth from the Pharaoh. So we know a lot about what's going on in Canaan and there aren't Israelites, right? There's no Israel in the land. So, okay, because of that, that, that sets our sort of sets a pin in the timeline for when at the earliest these traditions can, can start to develop as Israelite stories. I mean, I don't think these traditions go back in Israel, can't go back at, I don't think any earlier than 1200, but, but probably more likely they're not developing until the first millennium, early first millennium. I don't think they develop in their final form until even later than that. Okay, so that was pretty dense but it provides some really important context for what's going on. Basically, Israel finds itself in a widely contested strip of land. If you've read the Old Testament, you're no stranger to hearing the odd detail about who controls what in the ancient Near East. And although the Hebrew Bible was written for religion more than history, it can give you a bit of an idea as to what's going on. If you're unfamiliar, don't worry. For the purposes of this podcast, what matters most is that you know ancient Israel develops in a hotly contested strip of land, and eventually Israelites are led off into captivity in Babylon. Babylon is in modern-day Iraq, for some frame of reference. For the rest of the episode, I want you to put yourself into those shoes. Imagine you've moved to another country. You're not fond of their traditions, or maybe they're just different, and you don't really feel comfortable with them. I mean, why should you? They aren't your traditions. And maybe you aren't being pressured to assimilate, but you still feel pressured. Maybe there's a new accent or new language to learn. Or maybe your children will grow up without knowing their ancestral tongue. Now, take that a step further. You didn't move to the country willingly. You're still treated like an outsider. And it's not just you, it's all of your people going through this. These things are real concerns of people today. Providing some additional context, Dr. Josh is going to connect the Enume Elish, which we talked about last time, with the seven days of creation. So now turning to the creation stories in Genesis specifically, uh, maybe if we look at the seven days of creation first, what relationship does that story have in particular to the other stories surrounding it and how is that story enriched by this context? So Genesis 1 is, by all accounts, and I think this is uh, cer certainly scholarly consensus, is utilizing the Enuma Elish. Part of the reason for that, or part of the reason that, that makes good sense to us, is I think arguably the Israelites in Babylonian captivity would have been well aware of this story, at least the Judean scribes. Right, the elite would have known about this story because the Enuma Elish, for those that, that don't know, again, it's the story about uh, the supremacy, the ascendancy of Marduk, the, the god of, the, of Babylonia. 
and he's he's coming to power over all the other deities by defeating the sea goddess Tiamat. That's what he does. And then he creates the world from her carcass. This story was recited every year at the New Year's festival. It's called the Akitu festival in Babylonia. And it was so central to the Akitu festival that you, you know, you can imagine that Judean scribes that are in Babylonian captivity every year are going to, at, at a minimum, are going to hear this, hear this story or know of this story. And it's going to have a tremendous, I think it's going to have a significant impa impact on them. And so there are lots of ways we don't have to go into all the details about, you know, the connections between them. But you see, for example, in what is it, verse two or three, the use of the word deep, you know, darkness was upon the face of the deep. The word there is to home. And it's a cognate with Tiamat. You know, it's the word for sea. Um, so Tamtu is the uh, the Akkadian word, Tiamat, Tamtu, you can hear it. Uh, so to home is uh, a cognate with Tamtu. So there are, there are ways that you can, you can look at Genesis 1 and say, okay, there's, there are some things called blind motifs that are showing up, but basically you can see the connections, sometimes subtly, sometimes not so subtly, between uh, this, this story of the Enuma Elish in Genesis 1. The, the context of this text is potentially the, the captivity in Babylon, and this is them kind of kicking against the story that gets repeated to them over and over again. And is it created as some sort of, well, our God is more powerful. Our God doesn't need to fight. Yes. It just creates. Absolutely. And, and this is, right, this is the way humans work. I mean, you just think about any fish story. Right. Right. You know, somebody goes fishing, and, I like 12-inch fish. Yeah, well, I caught a 14-inch fish. Yeah, well, you know, or the, the you know, when I was a kid, I had to walk uphill to school. Yeah, well, when I was a kid, I had to walk uphill both ways, you know. Or I, you know, I didn't, I had to do it without shoes. Shoes, you know, and like, whatever. Uh, those sorts of, those sorts of things. And you have to, I think we have to recognize when we look at passages like, for example, Isaiah's little apocalypse, where Isaiah 27, 24 to 27, like these are, these are texts that are being written in periods where there's some, like there's some chutzpah for the Israelites. Think about it. If you're doing that in the Babylonian captivity, your temple's destroyed, right? I mean, you know, you've been taken off into exile for you to say that your God is bigger and badder is like, what's that now? I mean, you know, so I think much of this has to do with this encouragement to the people that are participating in the mythology. Like our God has brought about order out of chaos in the past. He's defeated, you know, the, the, the chaotic uh, sea creatures and the forces, these forces of chaos. He's brought them under control and he can again do it for us. Right, that he's powerful, and even though we're in this position where temple's been destroyed, we're here in captivity. It seems like all hope is lost. Take heart, because our God, even more so than these other deities, uh, has done this in the past and can do it again for us. Again, imagine you and your entire culture are taken into captivity. Whether or not this story was flat out written as a polemic against these other stories this story surely would have been used to bring these people together. 
every time I see a Canadian while I'm visiting the United States, we talk about Canadian things and what it's like to be Canadian. Specifically, what it's like to be a Canadian in the U.S. What kind of jokes do we make? How many people believed us when we told them we ride polar bears to school? It's not that we don't have other things to talk about, but talking about those things makes us feel a little less alone. This story meant something to the real people living real lives in this time in history that really happened. As I step off my little soapbox here, I'll remind you that some 4 billion people hold this story dear today. So no matter what background you're coming at this from, I hope you find some appreciation for the story as we continue this podcast. Well, thank you for listening and supporting this program for another episode. Once again, I'll invite you to stick around for the credits. A massive thank you to those of you who support this podcast and the rest of my work on Patreon. If you'd like to become a supporter, it's the first link in the show notes. You'll get a thank you postcard from me and a bunch of bonus content as well. The Creation Stories is a production of Polytropus FM. I, Alex Williams, wrote, produced, hosted, and edited this episode. Our guests include Cantor Russell Jane, Imam Saeed Hassan, the Reverend Natasha Brubaker Garrison, and Dr. Joshua Bowen. If you'd like to get in touch with any of our guests, see their work, or support them, I've put links down in the show notes. Specifically, Dr. Josh has recently published the Atheist Handbook to the Old Testament, which I think will broaden your appreciation for these stories regardless of your background. If you're in the Calgary area, I highly recommend you visit calgaryinterfaithcouncil.org to see how you can get involved in the interfaith community here. There will also be updates available there on the upcoming UN World Interfaith Harmony Week. Special thank you to Rob Falconer, Matt Baker, Dalton Harding, and the Calgary Interfaith Council for connecting me with guests and additional resources. Thank you to Garrett Vandenberg for creating our theme music. He's also done the original music for My Wax Museum and Polytropus, so I highly recommend you check out his work. Additional sound effects and music, courtesy of Selker Studio, Unreal SFX, Craig Carter, and Carly Fairburn. And thank you to Bethany Gustafson for the show's cover art. A full list of sources and credits can be found in the show notes. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back tomorrow with another episode.